It's heartbreaking losing recordings that cannot be replaced. So that's uh, that's the state I'm in right now. It's uh, Thursday after we played last Sunday, and uh, I'd been editing a little bit here and there on the last podcast, and we had the best audio quality we'd ever had, despite the fact that we're currently we have a player in Brazil, one in uh, Korea, one in Copenhagen, one in Paris, and one in New York, and we had the best audio quality we've ever had. So that's pretty painful. Um, that was our la- or our fourth session, and I, I thought I would just uh, have a little bit of time right now. I would just summarize some of my thinking on where the campaign is, and, and I'm really, I'm really heartbroken that uh, you can't hear this last session in particular because it was the best session so far. Luckily, it wasn't an intricate session. It, it was in terms of how I had to run it and manage it, but it, in terms of what happened, it was not. It's not like there was like. 15 clues and you had to kind of follow through all of them and and figure out all kinds of stuff. It was pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a relatively linear portion of the game, uh, this bit. Uh, so much so that I think some people actually find it um, um, to be a flaw in, in the campaign itself. Uh, this is one of the things that the campaign has been the most uh, accused of uh, over the years is being a very linear campaign and that is true to some extent but that is true for most of uh, Cthulhu um, scenarios and campaigns um, even if if you take uh, something like Masks of Nyarlathotep yes you can choose to go to different locations but there's still a lot of linearity kind of inherent in in the setup of having to go through some of those scenes and whatnot it's not completely arbitrary personally I don't have a problem with it I, I like linearity in campaigns. I, there's, there's a strong story in something like Beyond the Mountains of Madness, and so that doesn't really bother me. Anyway, short, short um, uh, tangent. So we finally got out of New York. Uh, I think my players were really happy about that. Um, it took us three sessions to get out, and uh, we, I mean, we started out with um, five players and then we lost uh, Bjorn. He was only there for the first session. He played Thomas McLugel. And that was a really, that was a big hit because I, I had in my mind a lot of stories, particularly for him, in the New York setting because he was a journalist. He lived in New York. He had a lot of connections and stuff. So there's a lot of room there to actually do a little bit of, of non-linearity in terms of, or in terms of like getting, going off script. From the book a little bit and, and kind of making him empowered through the, the skills and connections he had but we didn't really get to to play through that and the other thing is also Bjorn is a really good role player he understands kind of story he understands the the, the collaborative narrative it is to, to to create scenes as a player and a game master and all those kinds of things so so that that's kind of a loss uh, but the good thing is we have Christian on board uh, from session four. Uh, oh yeah we, we also lost um, uh, Anna Trask, who plays uh, Lord Whimsy. He's been there for, uh, I think, a session and a half, maybe two sessions, I forget. Uh, but we lost him as well. Uh, it seems like he might join in again, but but um, uh, he hasn't been there a couple of times as well. So it luckily we have a core of players who've been there every time, uh, Tom, Jens, David, and 
that's really important to kind of have a narrative thread um, because there's so many things going on. There's so many things that you have to remember from you know throughout the whole game. You're you're telling this long story, and it's you know it's it's not like some campaigns where you have little little individual sections that in themselves are stories. It's actually a, a one long story, and so it's really important that you have you know coherence uh, and and uh, continuity there for players. Um, and, and the great thing about getting Christian on board is that Christian has been playing role-playing games forever. He's got a 15-year-long uh, Dungeons & Dragons campaign. So it's really good to get him on, bo on board here. And like I think with all the players, and I, I think I touched on this before, I'm not sure, but as with all the players, he's a Dungeons & Dragons player. So it's, it's a very different uh, kind of world for him to get into. And um, I think he's he's going to enjoy that a lot, and um, and there's going to be some great scenes. He also has a slightly more whimsical character than uh, any of the other ones, who are all relatively serious, even if we have some fun moments here and there. And so it adds a little bit of levity to to the situation, without hopefully, uh, you know. And we've I think I think we're all we're all pretty we have a good understanding I think of where we want this thing to to be in terms of tone and style and aesthetic. Um, so without ever making it into uh, a parody or, or anything like that. That's, that's really important to me, especially because, you know, and, and spoilers for anybody listening. If any of my players are listening to this, uh, stop. Um, but especially in, because this is a campaign that it's really a science fiction epic in a way. You know, it's a horror epic, but it's a science fiction story about aliens coming to Earth and creating life and and building these giant ruins and all this kind of stuff. And and you always need a little bit of levity to kind of lighten the mood a little bit so that you can bring it down again and make it serious. And it's such a shame that we, we don't have this last session recording because the it worked really well. And, and I was really worried about this. The uh, In short... You kind of you you leave New York. We had a little bit of a preamble. We went over some of the the uh, Gordon Pym, Arthur Gordon Pym uh, material. Um, but then you go into this journey, which is a, a long read um, from New York down through Panama and out into the Pacific. And I was afraid that it was going to be too much reading. But it actually is. First of all, you know, I really like reading, uh, you know, reading it as a book because it's so well written. The descriptions are rich. Uh, it feels really good. Um, and I was afraid, though, that reading it out loud would be kind of uh, feel stiff, and 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 people just kind of okay, let's get let's get on with this. But that's not what happened at all. And I think actually people enjoyed it, and it gives them it gives them color, and it 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 sets a sense of now the journey begins. You know, it, it, there's without without having some some journey descriptions uh, that that have a certain amount of detail, you you lose a little bit of the realism, uh, for lack of a better word, of, of traveling, you know, down, um, down along the coast and, and through the Panama Canal. I brought, um, I found an old map of the Panama Canal. I found some postcards of ships that looked kind of like the Gabrielle. So I shared those as well and, um, and kind of walked them through where we were and all this kind of uh, stuff as we were going along. Um, but to go back to, to the pacing thing, um, what I was most afraid of was that this line crossing ceremony, which when I first read it, I thought that I can never make that work. I can I don't know how to role play this. But the, the good thing is you don't actually have to role play it. You just kind of have to 
uh, read it out loud. And, and uh, it's, it's not quite how the book is set up. And I think I've read a couple of, or I, uh, sorry, I've listened to a couple of podcasts of this campaign. I think other people go into it a little bit more of a role-playing thing, but there's not a lot there you can do because it requires a little bit too specific uh, role-playing. So, um, so I just I just went through the text and, and as we were playing, I didn't prep this at all. Um, I just found the passages to read out loud. I, I put on a funny voice, you know, for for Captain or for the Neptune uh, Neptunus Rex and for his servants and whatnot, and and it just became like kind of this fun weird thing. And uh, and at the same time, it turns out that um, both uh, David and Christian um, actually knew of this line crossing ceremony. I've heard about similar things before, and so we had a little bit of a talk about that. Which I'm, I'm really sad is missing now, but uh, but it was really fun to to just kind of hear and it, and I let that roll a little bit just kind of to get people into to this idea of uh, um, of being at sea and like how to to help also kind of underscore the realism of of how this journey is set up, you know, because the fact that they can relate to something like this uh, in real life means that, that they, I think they, it brings a, just a small level extra of, of buy-in into the, into the, the, the detailed uh, granular, uh, um, sorry, the granular detailed-ness uh, of the campaign. Um, and then, then that also sets you up for a better dramatic curve. You know, when you, when you look at uh, scene composition in terms of, storytelling um, when you're writing a screenplay you're really um, you're always talking about turning points and 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 um, coming in uh, positive and going out negative or vice versa so a scene might uh, start start out with a man comes home uh, he's happy he's brought flowers uh, he can't wait to see his wife you know he's he's, uh, he's been on a long business trip he comes home and they have a conversation and then somewhere in the middle of it uh, she says I'm leaving you and you know, fight breaks out, and you you come in on a positive, you leave on a negative, and it's kind of the same for sequences and so forth. Um, in terms of role playing, in terms of any kind of storytelling, really, um, that's kind of that's how you get that dramatic drop. So you go from that into the ammonia incident, which I think is not the strongest one. It's um, it, it's a little it's a little too subtle almost, but it works. Um, it would. It would almost be better if you went straight into the dog sequence because it's so well described in the book that when I read it out, I think it actually had kind of an impact on my players. Um, it's it's very graphic. It's um, even for people who don't necessarily are animal lovers, which I am. Um, it, it's it's a pretty hard scene, and the way we played it out was. Um, Essentially, the players were not super involved up until this point. You know, the way they had been involved was not through actual in-game action, but they they talked about various things. But there was not a lot of in-game action because what can they really do at this point? You know, the, the, most of the journey is just something that kind of happens. And my players are also not, and I think I've talked about this before. They're not people who go out and and create scenes. You know, it's it's not. At least this hasn't been the case so far. So they won't come out and say, "Okay, well, I spent time with this person doing, you know, doing a little bit of this, kind of talking to him about this." You know, if I'm a scientist who, or a geologist, for instance, I, I seek out the other geologists and you know talk about rock samples and all this kind of stuff. That doesn't happen in this campaign. It's much more um, 
action oriented, not in terms of you know high speed chases, but in terms of having actions uh, that they can perform um, and having very direct things that they need to do to further the plot or further their understanding of what's going on and whatnot. Um, so, and and so here with the dogs, um, I I left enough room as the scene progressed to have them be capable of stepping in if, if they wanted to. So that if if they, um, and so the first thing David did was actually really clever. He said, I'm, I'm gonna try and get a hose. I'm gonna hose them down to see if I can stop them. And he did that, but it, it, it was only a temporary uh, help. And now there was water slushing around with, you know, these wounded dogs. It was salt water and, and blood. And, and so it becomes even worse almost. Uh, and it obviously didn't help. and as the scene progressed and it became more and more obvious what needed to be done, nobody stepped up. And I think, this is my reading of it anyway, that um, at some level, the idea of having to take a gun and go down and shoot these these poor dogs was not something anybody really wanted to put their character through. And so one of the NPCs has to do it. And, and, uh, and I think I heard this in one of the other games, actually. Somebody had like this really good idea which is kind of brutal um that and i maybe it's even in the book i'm not going to look it up right now but the guy goes down he shoots and you kind of describe almost each shot like you, you start with the first one like bang he shoots the first dog it, it it falls to the floor with a whimper and he he goes to the next one bang and he keeps doing this to five dogs and then he gets to the last one and he shoots it but he misses and you describe kind of how the bullet hits the jaw. The dog is 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 uh, you know terrified and it's it's howling and screaming of pain, and its its jaw is completely messed up, um, and just this sound. And then you have them roll for for stability, uh, and and I think that actually had a really good effect uh, in in game. It felt like um, it felt like uh, people were a little shocked at at how this all of a sudden. Um, escalated and uh, and I, I'm actually really happy that that it, it wasn't like a, a complete you know people weren't terrified at the, the, the virtual table necessarily but but there was a, an effect there and I was afraid that with a virtual tabletop we would never quite get there because you can't um, you can't lower the lights and have everybody kind of pay attention you know people are literally spread out over almost every time zone uh, on the planet and so so it's a big deal to try to get some emotional response in terms of, um, you know, in a horror game. Um, so, so that's good. I think that'll come in handy knowing, knowing that later on. And luckily I think my players also, there's a lot of buy-in there. And, um, and that was always one of the most important things for me as a keeper, um, to make sure that my players understood, um, and, and they're all, you know, pretty mature players that there's, they have to be bought into this. You know, you can't, you can't kind of half-ass it. You don't have to be a thespian, you know, role player. That sounds Swedish. That's very odd. Um, you, but you have to be bought into the fact that you, you're trying to set a tone and, and you have to read each scene and so forth. And, and that's really important in, in horror role-playing games. And, and they, they did that, and I think it, um, I think it, it really helped here. After that um, came a part of the... the um, the game, which you know, it's not—it's not really linear. It kind of starts to break down a little bit in terms of what 
can happen, what's supposed to happen. And, and you, I think as a keeper, you just kind of have to play it out. Uh, my players went through the, the holds looking for um, somebody who would come on, come on board. They never started to ask questions about who has access. And I think that's actually, it's suggested in the book that, that that's one of the ways you can solve this. But I think the problem there was that I never really properly indicated to them that the holds were locked off and only a certain amount of people had access. And that way they could have started deducing who it could have been. I think that would have been a really good way to go through it, um, but instead they they decided they found the bomb, which I, I let them found the bomb in the hold, and then they set a guard down there, which is a little much because it, it's about it stretches over. I forget when they found it, but it's something along the lines of like say a week. So over the course of a week, every hour of the day, somebody has to be in that hold, and they have to go in and out without anybody, you know, specifically Henning. Um, uh, being suspicious, it's a little much because you're going to have to spend like six hours in that hold, if not more every day, eight hours maybe. Um, it's dark, it's uh, it's smelly, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's claustrophobic. I mean, you don't probably don't even have light to, to read or anything down there because you, you can't reveal yourself should anybody come down. So it's a little unrealistic, but I I figured, and especially given the time that we, we had left of the session, you know, I would rather have them feel clever and and solve this. And I, I stretched it out a little bit so that it wasn't quite obvious what was going to happen. And then I said, okay, somebody comes into the hold. And of course, they hadn't thought it through. Uh, so they had Pierre down there and he, uh, after uh, uh, Henny had gone over to check the bomb and started putting, uh, pulling the cord back to, to connect it to the, the top part um, so he could ignite it when they, when they arrived in Melbourne, um, Pierre uh, steps out and says, uh, you know, uh, show yourself. And at that point, I could have given Henning a gun or I could have given him a knife or something and I could have killed Pierre. And honestly... I'm not sure that I shouldn't have. I'm pretty sure that Tom would have been pissed off if I did, but it would have sent a pretty clear signal in terms of having a player be be killed at this point. You know, it's like the first possible point somebody could get killed. They are, um, but I didn't do that. I'm, I'm probably too nice a game master. I, I do think that um, next time something like that happens, I'm going to be a little bit more brutal. Because this should have taught them a lesson about it. And Pierre actually is like a, a pretty shitty fighter. So he didn't even... He took a lot of damage in that fight. And uh, I would have... If if he could have killed him with his bare hands, he would have, I think. But ultimately, it played out pretty well. I think they were... They felt pretty smart. Um, I'm... I might have been a little bit too lenient in that uh, fight because he's in the lower hold. He's shouting through a closed... Um, presumably, Henning would have closed the, the door above him, but um, the porthole cover. But I didn't... Uh, I don't think I... In the game, I don't think that's how it played out. And so Hermann Altmaier was close by and, uh, and came down. Now... Uh, Realistically speaking, uh, he probably wouldn't have. But 
again, it's a game you try to reward players for 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 helping tell the story, and so you know it, it is what it is. <coughs> Excuse me. So what else? I mean, they caught him, and and then next time it's on to Australia, then on to the ice, and I think everybody's pretty excited about that. I'm going to skip the Australia chapter. Um, I'm running this off of the second edition, and in the second edition, the Australia chapter is optional, um, and I don't. I don't think it's a chapter for my players, and and it's actually the the other problem is which I, I skimmed over uh, last time is all of the things that Henning has sabotaged in um, in the course of the journey. Now he they, they would have to go over the manifest again to check all that, and I never that never properly occurred to me until I was we were in the middle of the session, and I, and I or it was just right before because I was reading through it again, and suddenly I was like, oh wait a minute. For them to find that stuff, they actually have to um, go through the manifest. And I don't think any of them want to do that. I'm not sure I want to do that because it's going to take an hour and a half, you know. And it's not—it's one of the bigger problems with the the campaign because it's it's hard to make fun, you know. You you go through the manifest and you look at it and it's like, okay, well, there's a number of tents. Okay, what do you do? Well, we take the tents out, you know, we, we unfold them and we put them up and make sure everything is there. Are all the rods there? Yes. Are all the the canvas pieces there? Yes. Okay, well, we pack it up again. We put it back. Okay, what's next? Okay, this thing. Okay. Well, we take this and we turn it on and we put the batteries and we take the wires and it's just not a lot of fun. You know, it, it's very mechanical and ultimately the fun is not released until later when suddenly well guess what your your field radios don't work because you didn't test them and they my players i think are not very thorough they're gonna <laughs> really screw this up so i don't know i'm looking for maybe a skill-based approach where it's like they can spend some points or something or maybe maybe i just maybe we have to go through it and that's kind of the only way or Maybe we play a flashback sequence or something. Um, that's suggested in one of the uh, additional, I think it's the Trail of Cthulhu conversion document for uh, the campaign. The author suggested that you could do it through flashbacks. And that might actually be, um, that might actually be worth figuring out if there's, there's anything you can do there. I'm not sure how that would work yet, but, um, but I am, I, I very much appreciate that this campaign um, moves as slowly as it does in terms of so far nothing out of the you know uh, nothing supernatural has happened um, in fact beside you know aside from the Miskatonic University expeditions uh, radio uh, wireless transmissions nothing has been indicated as being supernatural there have been no documents there are no books there have been nobody's casting spells um, the, the only thing is that there's somebody trying very, very hard to keep them off of the ice. That's four sessions, and each session is about three hours, more or less. Um, so that's 12 hours of nothing supernatural in the Call of Cthulhu campaign. I really like that. Um, and then next time, you know, they're going to go to Melbourne, and then they're going to go to the ice. And I expect that about an hour, hour and a half maybe into the session, the Lexington camp is going to, uh, is going to radio for help, uh, or, or that whole, that whole event's going to start unplaying, it's going to start playing. 
and that'll so we'll see I'm not crazy about the idea um, um, I'm not crazy about the idea of of uh, Danforth uh, having cast a spell to have these people go crazy I there was suggested in the trail of uh, Cthulhu conversion document as well it, it has the, the wonderful title you you accidentally got fantasy in my science fiction I think it is and that's exactly how I feel. Everything else is is a goddamn science fiction story, and then here's a spell, and it's it's true to the Call of Cthulhu universe, but it doesn't feel true to the story, and it doesn't feel true to At the Mountains of Madness either, uh, because ultimately it's it's a story of beings from another world that came down and and really are incredibly human. You know that's the whole point of that story is how. Um, they are individuals, first of all, and how um, their human soci- human-like society, um, you know, broke down and, and all of these things. And to have this fantasy element there, it just it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. The second edition of the campaign is really really good in many ways. I think the whole beginning of it, when they it, it took out the Warwick thing and put instead in a um, a section in which you can visit uh, Acacia Lexington and have a conversation with her is much, much better, even if my players didn't make the most of it. And so later on, when you do get past the mountains, it becomes, there are sections in the, in the second edition that are much more fantastic. And you can actually kind of, you can travel back in time in a certain sense of the way. Like it's a time wave. You, you kind of travel back in time and see how the city was when it was alive. Uh, there's a lot more detail about the Elder Thing society and all this stuff. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that yet. Um, some of the things I think are great, but it removes a little bit of the, the tension and the, 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 the pressure that uh, the, the initial edition had. And I'm not sure what I'm, how I'm going to play that out, but I do intend to keep it fairly science fiction-y throughout because I think the... The core of that of the whole, the whole story by which I mean everything that has to do with Beyond the Mountains of Madness feels better that way. Um, even you know, even um, uh, the Pym document uh, or the story you know is is fantastic, but not in a not in an overtly fantasy like way. Um, it's it's much more about you know that kind of eighteen hundreds idea of at least seen through the prism of Beyond the Mountains of Madness, it's more about that 1800s kind of idea about societies that are other that are bigger and better than humans, so like utopian, dystopian fiction and whatnot. Um, and it, it just feels better if we kind of try to leave the, the, the spells out of it. Anyway, uh, kind of a tangent. Um, yeah, so really sad that this last... Um, batch of recordings got lost that's that's uh i tried very hard not to have that happen but obviously not hard enough so so we'll see um going forward i'm gonna i'm gonna make more of an effort to make sure that doesn't happen um i'm also gonna try and um get a few more materials online um from the campaign i i kind of want to write more about um my experiences with this campaign, my experiences in terms of like running, running a horror game. I, I found that 
I really love the Trail of Cthulhu system, and I, I think it's a great system, but I'm afraid I've made a mistake uh, in running Beyond the Mountains of Madness with it because, first of all, the second edition that we have, I don't have the, con there's no conversion material for that, but even the conversion material that I do have, it doesn't actually cover everything. Uh, uh, Henning, for instance, doesn't have stats, so I had to kind of just uh, make it up on the spot. Which is not the worst thing in the world, but you know, it, it would be nice to have stuff like that covered. And there's also just a lot of extra stuff you have to keep in mind. You know, all the time you have to have, I have to, or I have to have Beyond the Mountains of Madness open. I have to have the conversion document open. I preferably have the timeline document open. I have my own notes, which is a combination of the timeline uh, stuff. So sometimes I don't need the timeline so much, but I, I try to keep it around anyway. Um, I have to have the Trail of Cthulhu rulebook around, um, you know, and then Roll20, Skype, and so forth. If you can hear sound, it's my cat playing with a toy. Um, anyway, it's getting late. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to round off for now. Um, those are just a few thoughts on the, the last couple of sessions. I, I forced, I would go back and say, I forced um, my players... More, I forced more information on them about Acacia Lexington than they had, than they had really earned. I, they didn't do their research at all about Lexington. And I'm, I'm really surprised because I don't understand why they didn't. Their expedition was subject to a bunch of um, mishaps and they immediately blamed Danforth, but they had this competing expedition and they didn't even start to kind of consider, well, what if Danforth is part of that expedition and, and he's with Lexington for some reason and they're going down there for another purpose or you know they never really started kind of conspiring about what could be going on they just immediately latched on to Danforth and they're right but they don't know that and that's really annoying they also they also just kind of skip over asking good questions when they have the chance um, and they got these articles that I gave to them even though they hadn't really properly earned them but um, my Initial plan was to get Thomas McGlugel to, to go through and get those things because I, I was pretty sure that Bjorn's, Bjorn as a player would, would figure out how to do that. But then he dropped out and I couldn't, so I just gave it to them. And in there, there's, there's this entire subplot about the auction, about finding out exactly what it is that they're missing and uh, getting, like there's a document, like a handout that they can get and everything, but they just didn't do that either. So... I'm, I'm trying to hammer home to them like a little bit more of the investigation stuff, but it's, it's, uh, it's hard to, to do that work for them sometimes. Um, hopefully it gets a little better. It's a little bit more kind of on the nose when we get further in, I think, um, when we get to Lakes Camp where, you know, you literally have a map with uh, things on it and you kind of point at something and you say, I want to investigate that thing. And then, you know, you, you start to you start to get information that tells the story. Um, so I'm going to prompt them a little bit more. I started doing that um, the, on session four. I kind of, in the beginning, and, and I was very obvious about this, and I put it in my notes to make sure that we summarized properly kind of all of the things that they had seen so far and, and had them talk a little bit about what they thought that meant. I, I really want to call out to them all of the missed opportunities that they've had um, that they, they, they didn't kind of follow up on. But, you know, it's, a, it's still a role-playing game, and uh, at the end of the day, you can't expect the players to know what's in the book. Um, so uh, I, I've, 
I've been relatively lenient, but also because I want them. There's so much material that I think is great, and I kind of want them to have it, and so I, I find a way to give it to them anyway. Uh, you know, just as long as they don't feel like I'm just pouring this stuff into their lap, as long as they they do feel like they work a little bit for it, uh, I think it's I think it's okay. Because um, you don't want to, you don't want to end up in a situation where it feels like you're you're dragging them by the nose through the story. It still has to feel like. Um, that they're doing the work, and specifically, you're you know it's it's funny because the thing that Beyond the Mountains of Madness is often um, accused of, which is that it's linear because it's an expedition that goes from New York to the Antarctic and to the mountains and so forth. Um, it's accused of of that being a problem, but in reality, it actually kind of creates a smoke cover under which you can you can be linear without it having uh, without it having to feel linear because you. You know the players understand that they have to go on this expedition. That's what the game is about, and so and the ship is not going to sail to the North Pole. It's sailing to the South Pole, and so that's the way it goes. And so under under that smoke cover, you can kind of do a little bit more than maybe normally you you could. So um, anyway, those were my thoughts for for this session. Uh, next session hopefully follows uh, not not too long from now, and. Um, Soon it'll be really hard for me because the second edition that I have is all these Word documents essentially um, spread out, and there there's a lot of them, and uh, it's hard to keep track of. So I'm gonna have to find a system. Maybe I'll print everything out and make a binder of it or something, so that I can I can kind of refer back to things faster than than I can right now because. Um, it was actually kind of a problem in the last session that I, I, I couldn't find the information I was looking for, uh, and that was using the book itself. So so that's also a, a complication. One more thing I would say before I sign off, and I really need to sign off soon, is I set up a system for playing music, you know, for streaming music to my players, and I, I, I filtered all these playlists out, and I did all this work, and I'm finding that while it's actually really good for me as I'm preparing because it really gets me in the mood, and, and that's important too. Um, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with it while I'm playing. And sometimes my players have to prompt me, uh, this is where you play the scary music, and then I go find the scary music and play it, and it works really well, but I forget. I just don't have the bandwidth to deal with that. There's so much stuff going on at the same time. And I've, I kind of forgotten that because I hadn't game mastered properly in a long time. I mean, I did some... Some the one ring, and I felt that was easier for some reason. Um, I'm not sure why, um, but maybe because the it centered more around Roll Twenty, and I had sound effects uh, inside of Roll Twenty, and and so it was a little bit more kind of in the workflow of it. But here, because it's it's a variety of different apps, I just don't have enough screen real estate to have everything there at the same time. And when I'm when I'm when I'm Game mastering, I'm focusing so much that I just forget about it. Um, so, you know, I almost want, I almost wish I had a production assistant who can kind of run that in the background. <laughs> uh, you know, have sound effects and everything, which I did last time. Uh, so when they were on the ship, there was an engine, there was, a, 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 you know, the ocean noise, there was a little bit of wind. Um, and when the ship shut off the engine, I would shut off the sound effect and, and, uh, and a couple of other things. But... Um, at some level, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a good dream to have that you could kind of provide of the perfect soundtrack for the role playing game. But at the same time, I actually I actually also find that 
providing that soundtrack, it almost detracts sometimes instead because it's too on the nose. You know, it's it's like you're listening to somebody tell a story and then they have to pause to to find the right sound effect. And, and it's just, it, it kind of pulls you out of it a little bit. Whereas if you don't have any of that, you're in full control with your voice. And if if you if you have the right players and you know how to kind of, you know your story well enough, that's a much more powerful tool. Um, so so that's really interesting. It's not quite like a, a Dogma 95, Larchman Trier-ish uh, approach to role-playing. It's, it's as old as role-playing, but nevertheless, I do find that, you know, the the what we would consider production value in terms of soundtrack and sound effects is not necessarily something that really adds a lot to um, to the experience. Um, it can, but it's it's definitely a part of the trade that I'm still sussing out. I'm still learning about it um, and, and trying to use it right. I, I like using the intro music. It's it's a little it's a little bit of a gimmick, but I, I do think it works. Um, and um, at least for me, and that's also important. You know, I'm also part of the game, so I need to please myself sometimes. That sounds wrong. All right, I'm going to sign off now. Um, thank you for listening, if indeed anybody is listening uh, to this. And uh, hopefully next time I won't be so careless as to lose the recording again. Um, take a leave.